Please open your Bible to Luke chapter 4, or Luke chapter 3, verse 21. This morning we'll be looking at Luke 3, 21 through 4, 15. How wonder if you ever heard in an advertisement a company promising to make the impossible possible? seems to be a pretty big theme among companies that have a product to sell. And the thing that's going to make the impossible possible is this new thing they've come up with. So just to confirm my suspicion this was a real thing, I just did a quick Google search and found a TV ad for the Honda CRV. The ad begins with images of the Honda CRV basically driving through optical illusions. And then a voice comes up, a deep voice that says, let's do those things that can't be done. The illogical, the improbable, the head-scratchingly implausible. Like less fuel in for more miles out. An impossible made possible. That's pretty exalted language for a slight improvement in gas mileage, right? And because of ads like that, we've grown numb to claims of the impossible made possible. But this morning, I hope that we can shake ourselves out of the the fog of hyperbole and advertisements. And I hope we can consider something that is truly impossible made possible. The impossible thing I want us to meditate on is this. Humanity cannot save itself. Men and women cannot save ourselves, and no mere human being can save another. No matter how hard we try, no matter how many advances we make with our technology or our psychology, we are still enslaved to sin and death. When I speak of sin, I mean loving and serving and ruling ourselves, or trying to, instead of loving and serving and obeying God. We cannot stop sinning on our own, nor can we erase the guilt that sin brings upon us before God. Because of this sin, we stand rightly condemned before God, We deserve, according to God's goodness and justice, to suffer and die in this life and to suffer and die eternally in hell. Salvation on our own is impossible. But in the coming of the man Jesus, God makes the impossible possible. Jesus does what no other man has been or is able to do. He perfectly resisted sin. He obeyed God. And he conquered sin and death. So as we look at the passage before us this morning in Luke, we're going to see how the impossible is made possible. We're going to look at Jesus' baptism, the genealogy of Jesus that Luke gives, and his temptation in the wilderness. And from this passage, we're going to mine out a a nugget of gold, a sentence, a gospel sentence that we're going to use to organize our time this morning. 
So here's the sentence. And this sentence is the, the foundation for how God makes the impossible possible. God is well pleased with Jesus, the new Adam who triumphs over the devil. This morning we're going to walk through each of those clauses in turn. That sentence again is, God is well pleased in, with Jesus, the new Adam who triumphs over the devil. So let's look at this first clause. God is well pleased with Jesus. We see this in Jesus' baptism in verses 21 and 22. Just a reminder, in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, we saw a very brief snapshot of John the Baptist's ministry. But now the focus turns back to Jesus in verse 21. So let's begin reading there, verses 21 and 22 of Luke chapter 3 on page 859. Listen to God's word. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Unlike Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism, Luke tells us nothing about any argument between Jesus and John are protests on the part of John the Baptist. In fact, the only way to know that John was involved at all in Jesus' baptism here is just by inferring from the prior context. The focus, when Luke tells about Jesus' baptism, is all on the activity of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God in heaven. Right? We see Jesus praying, the Holy Spirit descending, and the Father in heaven speaking. Directly to his son. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So here's a place in the scriptures in which we see the triune God revealed. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The love and power of God the Father is poured out on God the Son through the Holy Spirit. And so because we're seeing the the Trinity here taught to us, we could say this is a passage that teaches some of the the highest theology we can imagine, a peek into who God is. And yet, even as we're getting this lofty theology, we have to remember the setting in which this theology is revealed. This isn't a a scene from back before the creation, as if we're getting kind of a, a backwards glance into eternity past. The setting of this, these two verses is the Jordan River, a place, you know, in, in the Middle East, as we'd call it today. And Jesus is the man who was born of Mary. We read about that whole birth scene a few weeks ago. Minutes before this happened, he was just a face in the crowd that had come out to see John, this group of Galileans and Judeans who've marched out to the wilderness to see what this strange prophet is doing. And now, he's a man with body and clothes soaked with the waters of the Jordan River. Because he's joined his brother Israelites in receiving this baptism that John was providing. This baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this man, Jesus, soaked with water, is praying to God. And it's upon this man, this recently baptized man that the Holy Spirit descends. 
It's upon this, to this man that the voice from heaven speaks and says the most amazing words. You are my son. So here in these two verses, we not only get this amazing revelation of, of God, the Trinity, but we are introduced yet again to Jesus, the man, the son of Mary, who is the son of God. We see that God became a man in Christ. So again, these two verses reveal to us God as Father, Son, and Spirit, and reveals to us Jesus as God incarnate, anointed with the Holy Spirit. Our opening clause, God is well pleased with Jesus, gives us some peek into one of the greatest mysteries of the faith. The three-person God that we confessed in the Nicene Creed, who has existed in perfect unity, three persons with one essence or one substance for all eternity, now is revealed with the Son of God incarnate. And we see that the incarnation does nothing to separate or divide up the Trinity. The Trinity is still the Trinity. And yet, they are also united in the mission of Jesus. Jesus come to earth to, to do things like be baptized and live before his Father. So we see the fabric of heaven is torn open, right? The heavens open. God has come down, and all of this is for the sake of sinners, for us and for our salvation. And the foundation for all of this saving work is built upon the fact that God's pleasure rests on Jesus. God's pleasure rests on Jesus. God is well pleased with Jesus. Let's dive into that a bit more. Why is that important, that God is pleased and well pleased with Jesus? Well, it may be helpful to remember in Luke, pleasing God has a special meaning. So remember back to what the host of angels say to the shepherds that night. After Gabriel first appeared, the multitude appears, and they said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So at the same time, this news is gloriously good and strange. Right? It's great that, that this majesty is revealed, but with whom is God pleased? Who can lay claim to this peace with God? Well, in Luke chapter 1 and 2, we might, we might identify well, faithful Mary, faithful Elizabeth, faithful Simeon and Anna. They, they seem to be at peace with God for their, through their faith. But now we have revealed specifically in Jesus, one with whom God is pleased. One man who enjoys abundant, perfect peace with God. He can lay claim to this peace and this pleasing of God for a couple of reasons. Again, going back to the, the Trinity, he's the eternal son of God. He's existed in this perfect unity with God for all eternity. God has been, the Father has been well pleased with the Son forever. But Jesus can also lay claim to this peace because he is the righteous man. He's the obedient one. And we're going to see that obedience played out in our passage this morning. So Jesus pleases God because of his divine nature and because he lives a human life that is pleasing to God. And this is very good news for us. It's such good news because we 
by nature don't please God. None of us do. The scriptures are very clear about this. We are all by nature guilty of sin, and therefore we cannot please God. The famous passage from Romans 3, where Paul quotes a chain of largely uh, psalms, he begins that by saying, None is righteous. No, not one. He says, No one seeks for God. No one does good. He says, The way of peace they have not known. Later in Romans 8, verse 8, he states it succinctly and bluntly, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is what the scripture says about us. We can't please God. We, by nature, have no peace with God. That angelic announcement is not for us because of our sin. We've loved and served ourselves instead of God in the way we think, the way we speak, in the way we act. So the good news of the gospel begins with this bad news that we are not pleasing to God. If you're familiar with the scriptures, if you've read a lot of your Old Testament especially, you often hear of faithful sacrifices described as a pleasing aroma to God. And we, we know we're to live our lives as, as those faithful sacrifices. But without God's saving work, we are not a pleasing aroma to God. We're like a dead raccoon in the attic in July. We stink. But if Jesus pleases God, then there is hope for all of those who are found in Jesus. The great promise of the gospel is that when sinners are joined to Jesus, when they're found in Christ, that we receive all the blessings of Christ. We're joined to Jesus by faith. So this, this faith union means that the blessings of the beloved Son are ours by faith. By faith, the Lord is as pleased with us as he is with Jesus, the Son of God. We're clothed in his righteousness. The stench of sin has been removed. By faith, we're transformed from being enemies of God to being his beloved children. Loved with the same love that God has for the beloved Son. By faith in Christ, those who are not pleasing to God can receive all the benefits of Christ with whom God is well pleased. And so in a world that's under the power of sin and death, it is very good news that Jesus has come and God is pleased with him. Now, I admit, I've not explained the, the full gospel to you. I've not told you anything about how Jesus dealt with our sin through his death and resurrection. You know, maybe you've hinted at it by talking about his obedience. But what I want you to see is that the good news of the gospel, which is fully revealed in Christ's death and resurrection, starts here with Jesus, the beloved Son, in whom God is well pleased. The gospel is founded upon Jesus, the baptized, anointed, beloved, well-pleasing Son. This salvation then is not about anything that we do, but all of it is rooted in Christ himself and who he is. Our hope is in Jesus. And what a great hope we have in him. Just think for a second. Can you measure 
or put into words the love that exists between God the Father and God the Son. Right? That's like saying, can you explain the Trinity to me? Can you put it down on paper? We can't explain it. We can't measure the Father's love for the Son. And neither can we measure God's great grace for sinners who are in Christ Jesus. Just remember back to last month when we looked at Psalm 103. The poetry of that psalm is taken up with trying to describe the immeasurable greatness of God's love. And the psalmist described it as, as high as the heavens are above the earth. God removes our sin as far as east is from west. He says that his love for his children is like a compassionate father. Those words are only true because Jesus is the well-pleasing beloved son. It can be true for us by faith in the well-pleasing son. Our great sin is infinitely evil. It's deserving of eternal punishment. But our sin can be paid for because Jesus is the beloved, well-pleasing Son of God. If you're tempted to doubt that God can save you because you know how terrible your sin is, you know how often you return to it, you think your sin is, is too gross or too stinky to be covered by Christ, look to Jesus who pleases God. Look to the Jesus of Luke chapter 3. If your faith is in him, you have nothing to fear from God. You are God's well-pleasing child. If your faith is in him, you are in Christ. And all the blessings of Jesus, the beloved son, are yours. And so we begin our gospel sentence this morning with God is well-pleased with Jesus. This is why the impossible becomes possible. Everything we have in the gospel is built on the fact that God is well pleased with Jesus. As we build on our sentence, then the next clause is that Jesus is the new Adam. God is well pleased with Jesus, the new Adam. Now to say that Jesus is a new Adam, we have to remember something about who the first Adam was. He was the first man made by the power of God. It might be helped just to remember how God describes the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 2. Let me read for you Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, it's not precisely the same way that, that Jesus was created in the womb of Mary, but there are similarities. I mean, what is God's breath of life? But the Holy Spirit, both Adam's flesh and Christ's human body were created by the powerful work of God. So Jesus is like Adam in the way he was created. But Adam is not only unique just because he's the first one. He also plays a unique role as the representative of all humanity. As Adam went, so went Adam's race. So went all people. And so to describe Christ as a new Adam is to say a new representative of humanity has arrived on the scene. And this is the point of Luke's genealogy that follows his baptism. Luke is the uh, only one who inserts a genealogy here between the baptism of Christ and the temptation 
of Christ in the wilderness. So let's read the genealogy, this list of names, beginning in chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosim, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mila, the son of Mina, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nation, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. There's a long list of names there. If you're looking for a name of a pet, you might find one there. I like Arfaxad. I think that's a good dog name. But the point of all these names is to show us that Jesus is a man, right? He comes from this genealogy. And we see that Jesus' genealogy here in Matthew, I mean Luke, is more detailed and extends further back than it does in Matthew. Matthew is more concerned to show us as Jesus as the true Israelite, and so he stops at Abraham. Luke wants us to see that too, but he goes back all the way to Adam, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Jesus is presented to us as a son of God like Adam was, and he plays a similar role to Adam, who stands at the head of the human race. But why do we need a new Adam? Well, the short answer is because of Adam's sin. Adam sinned against God. He, he ate the forbidden fruit. He, he did not guard and protect the garden from the wiles of Satan. And Adam's sin did not only affect his own state before God. Adam's sin had tragic and permanent ramifications for all of Adam's descendants. All of these people listed and so many more. Because of Adam's sin, Adam's race is under the curse of sin and death. The promise of the new Adam is, is there even in the Genesis account. So as God was pronouncing a curse upon the serpent in Genesis 3.15, he announced that there would be an offspring of the woman who would be an enemy of the serpent, and this offspring would crush the serpent's head. So to kind of take it out of Bibleese for a second, we're, we're seeing a promise that a man would be born of a woman, and he would do what Adam failed to do. 
Adam should have crushed the serpent's head the second he slithered into the garden. This one will be born of a woman who will do that. He will overcome the devil. And it's vital to God's plan that the Savior be a man like Adam to succeed where Adam failed. Jesus is the new Adam. And it's very good news that Jesus is the new Adam because of how strong and powerful sin and death are. We are under a curse. We are enslaved to sin and death. We inherited this from Adam. And not only did we inherit it, but each of us have ratified Adam's sinful decision at every stage of our life. And now if left to ourselves, we are stuck here under the reign of sin and death. We see in this long list of names between, from Adam to Jesus, a whole list of people who were unable to escape from under this curse. No man, no matter how great their faith, have been able to change the reality of human slavery to sin and death. I mean, did you, did you catch that? It's impossible for us to undo what Adam did. And the genealogy of Jesus makes this point for us. That's because in Jesus' line, we see some of the greatest figures of faith. I mean, if, if somebody, if some man was able to do it, to escape from sin and death and to, to lead a new humanity, one of Jesus' descendants should have been the guy. I mean, ancestors should have been the guy. So just let's take a few of these figures and, and look at what they did. We read that in this genealogy, Jesus was descended from Noah, who built the ark. Noah was righteous, right? And God graciously used Noah in a way as a new Adam to restart the human race. But what happens after Noah? Noah's own sons are clearly sinful. And within a few generations, humanity is just as rebellious as the people were before the flood. Noah, as great as he was, couldn't overcome the power of sin. Out of this proud humanity, we come to Jesus' great ancestor, Abraham. He was graciously called out of Ur to go from Ur to Canaan. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. Righteousness. But what, uh, what came of Abraham's offspring? By and large, Abraham's descendants were stubborn and rebellious people. Abraham's faith could not solve humanity's sin problem. And then several generations we come to King David. He was a man after God's own heart. The Lord made David special promises that he would be a father to him and his descendants, that someone from David's line would sit on a throne forever. But David and his royal line were all stained by sin. As great as David was, as many battles as David fought, David could not defeat Satan. He could not deliver humanity from the power of sin and death. So by and large, the genealogy of Jesus is a genealogy of men who could not save humanity. We desperately need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that is why it is such good news that Jesus comes as the second Adam, the new Adam, the man born of a woman, and yet who inherited none of Adam's corruption. Because he was conceived in Mary's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, and because he is God himself, he is uniquely qualified to be the new Adam that we need, to overcome the curse. He's the man anointed with the Holy Spirit without measure, 
And he is God himself. He is the God-man who is more powerful than sin and death. The coming of Jesus, the new Adam, shows us the vanity of trying to save yourself. If Adam and Noah and Abraham and David, if they couldn't save themselves or humanity, what hope do you and I have of saving ourselves, much less anybody else? You know, so much of our own effort is spent trying to, to manage our sin away in some way or the other. So some of us try to ignore sin and just sort of forget about it. I wonder, if, are, are you doing that right now with some sin or the other? Are you trying to distract yourself with social media or TV news or relationships or something else? Others of us try to respond to our sin by, by making up for it. Try to work harder to do what's right or to avoid a certain temptation. Are you trying to do that? Are you trying to deny yourself? Are you ramping up those personal disciplines to kind of overcome your sin yourself? We deceive ourselves into thinking that somehow we can escape or pay for our own sin through something that we do. But the problem of our sin is too great for us to solve. There's no way that we can escape it. But the good news is that God has not left us to ourselves. A new Adam has come. He's arrived on the scene and he is unstained by sin. He is not corrupted. He's the son of God who lives a perfect life, completely righteous. And yet this new Adam came and bore the curse that the first Adam brought. The new Adam suffers the first Adam's penalty so that we can be saved. We can be forgiven of our sin and united to him in faith. So trust in Jesus, the new Adam, the beloved son, to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Jesus, the new Adam, makes the impossible possible. And that brings us to the final clause of our gospel sentence. Who triumphs over Satan. Who triumphs over the devil. God is well pleased with Jesus, the new Adam, who triumphs over the devil. We see this in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to himself, If you are the Son of God, command these, this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country, 
and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. We see the first Adam had his own experience of temptation with the devil, and we know that he fell into sin. Now Jesus goes out, led by the Spirit, to confront the old serpent. And Jesus, the new Adam, triumphs where the first Adam fell. Once again, consider the impossibility of doing this yourself. You know, I think it's common to wonder when we read the first account of man, or the, the account of man's fall in Genesis, we think, man, if it could have just gone a little differently, right? If, if Adam would have just done something a little differently, if he had stopped Eve, or if he had rebuked Eve and crushed the serpent, and we think we, we would have done it differently. If we understood the command, we would have acted differently. I wonder if that account is so brief, we don't understand the reality of the temptation. And perhaps it would be better to put ourselves in the place of Jesus. How would you fare after 40 days of hunger, facing up against Satan, quoting scripture to you, in some ways accurately? How would you bear up under that temptation? None of us would have passed this test. Only Jesus is able to triumph over Satan. In the temptation that the devil brings to Jesus, he aims to exploit any possible weakness in Jesus. And so we get this detail about Jesus' hunger. And so Jesus is there in the wilderness. He's intentionally retracing Israel's steps, right? So Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, and they worried about their food. Well, now Jesus is there experiencing hunger in the wilderness for 40 days. And so Satan sees this hunger, and he tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread. Interestingly, at the same time as he's doing this, as he's appealing to Jesus' human weakness, Jesus' hunger, he also appeals to him as the Son of God. The way that the Greek is written should really be read, because you are the Son of God, turn the stone into bread. And really what Satan is saying to Jesus here is, look, someone as glorious and powerful as you doesn't need to put up with the misery of hunger. So in the same stroke, the devil tries to prey both on Jesus' human frailty and his divine nature. Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, taking on flesh. That doesn't mean that he stopped being God, but that he for a time laid aside the power and the glory that were his by right as the divine son. He did this so that he could become a man and, and be able to suffer. Satan is here tempting Jesus to reassert his divine rights, his divine power and glory. But Jesus resists. And he resists by quoting from Scripture. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3. And he only quotes one clause of Deuteronomy 8.3, but it's worth hearing the entire verse. This is Moses speaking to Israel. Moses says, and he, the Lord, humbled you and let you, let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Israel was supposed to have learned this lesson from the manna. Not, not that just that God's going to give them food, but that, that God's word are the words of life. And Jesus shows that he has learned that lesson. He knows that God's word is what sustains him. And so he's different than Adam, right? 
Adam was tempted with food and he ate. Jesus does not fall into that temptation. He's different than Israel because he, he knows that God's worthy and, and reliable. And so he doesn't turn the stones into bread. He lives by God's word. Despite his extreme hunger, he has total, complete faith in his father. And his faith results in perfect obedience to God. So you see, Jesus here is presented as the perfectly faithful and obedient man. The devil's second temptation in Luke comes with a promise of power and glory. If Jesus will humiliate himself by bowing down to Satan, the devil promises to give him authority and glory of all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, I think any of us would be tempted, and and often are tempted, by the prospect of a quick rise to power and glory. Right? If, you, if you're told tomorrow that the company is going to elevate you and give you a bunch of authority, you're like, well, great, I'll take it, you know, and the increased pay that comes with it. Right? That, that temptation is something that I think a lot of people really are tempted by. But we should see that this temptation is specifically tailored to Jesus because Jesus is, is he knows he's promised power and glory, but a power and glory that comes to him after his humiliation and crucifixion that he will have to be treated as a cursed sinner before he is raised to glory. So this temptation gets at the heart of Jesus' mission. Satan is tempting Jesus to, to do an end around that suffering and immediately have power and glory. But again, Jesus resists, quoting this time from the passage Pastor Gio read for us in Deuteronomy 6. He knows that he should not bow down to Satan. He should worship God alone. And so he is completely devoted to the worship of God. He's completely devoted to the worship of God alone, even though he knows that devotion means being crucified as a sinner. Jesus worships God. He is presented as the man who is the perfect worshiper. The final temptation is once again aimed at Jesus' identity as the Son of God. But this time, Satan enhances his tactic, right? He borrows a a page from Jesus' own playbook. So Jesus can say, as it is written, well, Satan can quote scripture too. And the devil quotes from Psalm 91. And the remarkable thing is that Satan is a pretty good reader of the Bible in that he knows that Psalm 91 is all about Jesus, right? You might not get that if you read Psalm 91 on your own, but Satan's right. It is a psalm about Jesus, But there's also a big way he gets the psalm wrong. Satan commits the age-old mistake of taking scripture out of context. See, Psalm 91 is not a blanket promise to the, the faithful servant that nothing bad will happen. The psalm is a prayer of faith of one who trusts God as his refuge and fortress and one who endures the the terror of the night, who endures pestilence, and who endures enemy attacks while serving God. So the the psalm assumes one who is believing and submissive to God. And there's one other glaring problem with Satan's quotation of this psalm. Satan quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, but he, he stops his quote short conveniently. Verse 13 of the psalm says, You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent 
you will trample underfoot. But the psalm promises the fulfillment of the Genesis 3.15 promise. That the, the Lord's servant, as he fights against the Lord's enemies and tramples on the serpent's head, the Lord will be with him. So Satan wants Jesus to take the promises of Psalm 91 and use them like a party trick. Or perhaps he wants Jesus to doubt whether God is really with him. And so by doing this careless thing of throwing himself off the, the pinnacle of the temple, he can be assured of God's favor. This is an opportunity for, for Jesus to take his father for a test drive. Will God really be with me through my suffering? But Jesus knows better. He never wavers in his faith and he confesses the words of Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord God to the test. Jesus proves through his temptation not only to be the new Adam but also the new Israelite who goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. He doesn't grumble. He doesn't test God. He doesn't doubt that God is with him. He goes out led by the Spirit trusting in the word of God and standing rock solid against the temptations of the devil. He does for us what none of us can do for ourselves. The old serpent tripped Satan, uh, tripped Adam up. The old serpent snared Israel into rebellion over and over again. But here in Luke chapter 4, he has met more than his match. The trampling underfoot has commenced here. Jesus resisted these three temptations, and, in, and Luke says every temptation. Right? There was something going on here of which we are not told. Temptations for 40 days in the wilderness. He was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. We see here that the triumph of Christ is another foundation of our hope. The beloved son has shown why he is so well-pleasing to God. He's not like Adam or Noah or Abraham or David. He's not like any of us. He's greater than all of us because of his righteous life. And we should remember that the triumph that begins here in Luke chapter 4 in the wilderness, it culminates in the empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. Jesus was the righteous one, and so death could not hold him. He triumphed over sin and death and the devil once and for all by resisting his temptations and by rising from the dead. And here's why this is so good for us. When we trust in Christ, God regards us as if we possess his righteousness. He regards us as if we personally had triumphed over Satan. But doesn't Paul tell us that we are raised with Christ to new life? If you're feeling beaten down by sin, remember that Christ is your Savior who's overcome sin and death and every temptation. He even overcame death for you. Rejoice in the salvation of the triumphant Christ. If you've never trusted Christ, do you see that you're powerless to fight against the temptations of the devil on your own? You're hopeless without Jesus. Our hope is that Jesus will hold us fast as we sang. God says that we're spiritually dead, but God can raise the dead. So turn to Jesus and trust that in his perfect life and death and resurrection, he paid for your sins 
and he gives new life. Repent of trying to save yourself and trust in the righteousness of the triumphant Christ. The triumphant Christ is also one who provides lessons for us Christians as we fight sin. How can one of us, a man or a woman like us, fight against the devil's temptation to sin? Well, we can fight the way Jesus did, by knowing God's word and by believing God's word. Do you, do you know God's word? Are you giving yourself to studying it so that, you can, so that you can internalize it the way Jesus did? I mean, how many of us have Deuteronomy 6 on our list of passages to memorize? But Jesus memorized it, right? He doesn't have the scrolls out. He's quoting scripture because he had them in his heart. Are we imitating our Savior in the way we fight temptation? Are you arming yourself with, with God's truth and God's promises? We have to confess, we are constantly tempted, aren't we? We're tempted to put our trust in our own comfort, our own glory. We're tempted to doubt God and put him to the test. Satan is tempting us with the same things he tempted Jesus with. But Jesus shows us that faith in him can sustain us. He shows us that even if worshiping God leads to your death, you can know that God is with you and that God will bring you out of death to resurrection life one day. So keep fighting like Jesus did. Don't give up. Keep resisting. By the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith in the word of God, live a life of wholehearted devotion to God. And when you do that, know that you're not alone. Jesus has gone before you resisting the devil. By faith in Christ, we also can live a life that pleases God. But even so, our hope is not in ourselves, it's in Jesus. For God is well pleased with Jesus, the new Adam who triumphs over Satan. In Jesus, the perfect Savior, we see that we have the, the only one who can save us. He's the man like us, and so he's able to represent us, but he, he has no sin like us. He's unlike the first Adam because he's perfectly righteous. He's the God-man. And so he's able to pay the infinite price that our sin deserves to satisfy the wrath of God. And he does this so that we can have eternal life. Jesus is the one who makes the impossible possible. When we consider Jesus the new Adam, it should remove any doubt we have about the goodness of God. Look at how God has cared for us in providing just the Savior we need. Consider how God came down to us to save us. He came to do what no mere man can do, to overcome sin and death for our sake. So if you're tempted to be angry at God for some severe trial that you're experiencing, if you're tempted to feel that you've been slighted by God, remember that you deserve, sin, deserve death because of your sin. And remember that Jesus came willingly to pay the price our sin deserves, to die, though he did not deserve it. Remember that because of Christ, the pain and the persecution you experience now are the closest to hell you will ever get. And one day the sorrow that you're experiencing now will be no more. It will be no more because the new Adam rose from the dead. 
I want to meditate on 1 Corinthians 15 as we close. This is one, one or two verses here. Paul says that Jesus is the new Adam, and that as the new Adam, he's called the man of heaven, as in contrast to Adam being the man of dust. And he says that, as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Beloved, don't you feel like you, you bear the image of the man of dust? But we belong to the man of heaven. And one day, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be completely transformed into the image of the man of heaven. Because Christ achieved victory over sin and death. Because God is well pleased with Jesus, the new Adam, who triumphs over our enemy. We, above all people, can endure our suffering with hope. It's impossible for us to save ourselves, but because God is well pleased with Jesus, the new Adam, who triumphed over our enemy, the impossible has become possible. We can be saved by faith in Jesus, the new Adam, the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for the miraculous and perfect salvation that we have in Christ. We could never have devised it. You have thought of every detail. Christ meets our every need. And so we stand before you grateful that you look upon us as you see Christ. We stand before you clothed in his righteousness. Through him we receive the adoption as sons. Because of him, we are alive. We are raised to new life. Because of him, we're seated with you already in the heavenly places. And because of him, we look forward to that day when we will be changed. We pray, Father, for your help to endure until that day. In Jesus' name, amen.